Please turn to Genesis chapter 42. It's a privilege to look at God's word with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would help us as we look to your word. We need your guidance. We need your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be here with us, guiding us and and leading us into these truths. Pray that we would see these truths and learn from them and that we would see Jesus Christ and would see him high and lifted up. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start reading Genesis 42. I'm going to start reading starting from verse 1. It says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Let some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Right here where Jacob's family is, it's not just Jacob and Leah and his concubines and the 11 sons and Dinah. This is 22 years after Joseph was sold into slavery. Remember, there was 13 years where Joseph spent in Potiphar's house and in prison. Then there were seven years of plenty. And then now they're actually two years into the famine. And chapter 46 tells us that by this time when Jacob's tribe, when Jacob's people are traveling to Egypt, that there are 70 people with him. So this is a lot of people. This is a lot of people. They're two years into the famine and they're already out of food. They already need grain and they don't even know that there's still another five years of this famine to go. So they need food. They need to act quickly. I'm going to continue reading there in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Remember, this is the, the first of the three sets of dreams that Joseph had. There were actually two dreams there. The first one was where the sheaves were bowing to him. And then he had another dream. What was that one? Where the sun and the and the moon and the eleven stars were, were bowing down to him also. Well, Joseph's mother had already passed away, but his father and Benjamin were still going to come and bow down to him as well. So this is basically the first dream happening before him. Let's continue looking at verse 7. It says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest 
is with our Father today, and one is no more. And, and I can think if there was a, a nation going to send spies to Egypt, and they were going to send ten men, these men would be professional spies. They would, act, they would, not, re, they would not really be brothers. Or at most, they would be pretending to be brothers. So here these men are trying to tell Joseph who they are. We're sons of one man. Uh, the, the, one of them is not here. He's, he's with his father, and, and one is no more. And while they're trying to prove who they are, to prove that they're not spies, they're actually going in the conversation exactly where Joseph wanted to go. He, was, he wanted to know about his father. He wanted to know about Benjamin. So we keep reading there in verse 14. It says, But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We're truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, and for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, or, and Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben said, 
Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Reuben saying there to his father, Kill my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you, using his two sons as a guarantee that he was actually going to bring Benjamin back. That was a terrible thing that he said. He's trying to guarantee that he's going to bring him back, but he's using his sons. It's it's much better what Judah ends up doing in a couple of chapters from now. But we see Reuben using his two sons much like he used Jacob's concubine in the past. We're going to guarantee something. We don't use other people to guarantee those things. So we begin, we begin here with the Israelites having gone through two years of the famine and, and they still have another five years to go. Jacob has heard that there is grain in Egypt, so he told his sons to go and buy grain so that they would live and not die. But he didn't send Benjamin. He kept him back. Verse 4 says, But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. He was thinking in case this was a dangerous journey, he was holding Benjamin back to keep him safe. But Benjamin wasn't a child here. He was the youngest of the brothers, but this was 22 years after Joseph was sold into slavery. And at that time, Benjamin was a child. But he's a, he's a grown man now. There's no reason for his father to keep him back other than just favoritism. The same kind of favoritism that he showed Joseph. And the same kind of favoritism that made them bitter, made the brothers bitter against Joseph. So we can, we can wonder where these brothers are. Are they the same men that they used to be? Are they still bitter now, not just at Joseph, but also bitter at Benjamin too? Well, that's what this favoritism does, and that's what favoritism always does in a household. It embitters people to one another. So these brothers left there and they arrived in Egypt. When Joseph saw these ten men, he recognized them that they were his brothers. And he, he saw each one of them and he realized, these are my brothers. This was, remember, 22 years before. They did not recognize him. When they last saw Joseph, he was 17 years old. He was just, he was a young man. 17 years old. And now he's already 39 years old. He spoke through an interpreter. He disguised his voice. He spoke harshly to them. He was wearing what Egyptians, Egyptian officials wore. So they didn't recognize him. At last they saw him, he was being sold as a slave. They could not imagine that this was their brother. But he saw them and he recognized them. And it says in the scriptures that he treated them harshly. He treated, he treated them harshly and, and he tested them. And we can wonder, why did he do this? We're not exactly told in the scriptures why he treated them like this, why he tested them like this. One opinion is, that he wanted to pay them back for how they treated him. He wanted to get payback. He saw this was a, a chance that he could do this, so he tried to do that. And we, we could think, if if that's what he was doing, that doesn't fit Joseph's character. Amen. Yeah, he, 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 he was persecuted. He was treated harshly by many people. We never saw him trying to get revenge. We never saw him trying to trying to prove others wrong. We just continued to see him trusting in God. And doing good. If he was treating them this way because of how they treated him, it wouldn't been it wouldn't have been to to be malicious to them. It would have been to bring discipline into their lives. 
like a fatherly figure would have, or like a, a loving brother would have who cares for his strain brothers. Verse 9 actually helps us to understand Joseph's mindset and how he treated them here and in the next couple of chapters, all the way into chapter 45 when he revealed himself to them. There in verse 9, it says that Joseph remembered the dreams which we had, which he had dreamed about them. He remembered the dreams. How many sets of dreams did he have? Three sets of dreams. And in each of those sets, there were two dreams. And, and he was told that it was revealed to him that those dreams were, were shown to him in, in pairs of two to prove that the thing was going to come to pass. So the first set of dreams was with his family, that his family would bow down to him. Then he interpreted two dreams for the butler and the baker. And he told the butler and the baker, do not interpretations belong to God? Then he interpreted two dreams for Pharaoh. And he told Pharaoh, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So Joseph had always understood these dreams and the interpretations of them to be of the Lord. So now that this is happening to him and, and he's recalling, this is the dream. He never really had the, the full interpretation of this dream until now. He always knew that his family was going to bow down to him because God always brought his dreams to pass. But he didn't know when it would happen. He didn't know how it would happen until this day. Now Joseph is realizing, well, this has to do with me being in Egypt. And this has to do with my family needing food and, and me being responsible to, to give them this food. So as he's remembering that dream, he's realizing that this is an event that is ordained by the Lord. God is in this. So he's not going to be using it to bring payback to his brothers. He never thought trifly that way. He, he never dealt petty in that way. He had a high view of God and, and he really sought the good of all those around him. He really sought how he could minister to those around him. And that's what's going on here. He's seen his brothers and, and he is wondering, are these the same men who sold me into slavery many years ago? And he's seen how he can, how he can reach them, how he can do good in them. So we can wonder, why is Joseph testing his brothers? And he told them that he was testing them. What did he tell them? Why was he testing them? Because he was accusing them of being spies. But he knew they weren't spies. He knew these were his brothers. So what is he doing here? He wants to see if they're the same hateful, murderous men that, he, that they were when he last saw them. Or if they've repented since then. Or if they're following the Lord like he has been and like, his, like their father has been. And if not, well, he, he wants to put pressure on them in order to bring them to a place of repentance, a place of where they are no longer relying upon self, no longer trusting in self and, and in the lies that they can, they can weave to get them out of problems, or if they're really trusting in the Lord. The scriptures say that he spoke roughly to them. He accused them three times of being spies, and he put, he put them all together in prison for three days. And these, these brothers are having a real good a real difficult time with this trip to Egypt. They thought they were going there to buy some grain and, and bring back the grain to their family. They didn't, they, they didn't know that they were in for this. It says in Psalm 107, it tells us there four times in that Psalm, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. So we can think that maybe we shouldn't be so quick to rescue our loved ones when they are in trouble and they know God, and they are outright living in defiance against him. 
They may be like those in Psalm 107. Or they might be like Joseph's brothers here. F.E. Meyer said about this that he believes that Joseph actually repeated the same events against them that they had did to him 22 years before when he was in, in the pit. That they probably accused him of being a spy when he went looking for his brothers. That they probably told him, we're going to leave you in that pit until we can verify that you're not really spying on us. And maybe it was Simeon that was the ringleader in that whole thing. Well, we don't have enough biblical information to verify that's true, but that could be possible. I do believe that Joseph was showing them this harsh treatment because he was wanting to break through their pride, to break through their self-righteousness, and to bring them to a place of repentance to God. He wanted to do some kind of spiritual good in them. And he probably didn't know exactly what the Lord was doing through him, but the Lord was using him. And we do see the Lord using Joseph in their lives here. It says that after that, after they were in prison for three days, Joseph came and he told them there in verse 18, do this and live for I fear God. For I fear God. He said, if you're honest men, that one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, that you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. He told them, I fear God in order to encourage them to trust him. He was a complete stranger to them. They didn't know who this was. But he said, I fear God. And this is not one of the pagan gods of Egypt. This is Elohim, the one true God. This this pagan who they think is, is some stranger to them, this Egyptian official is mentioning God, the very God of their father, the very God that they supposedly believed in and worshipped and and, and followed. They did it only in pretense, though. But he mentioned God to them. And we know Joseph's story. His story is, is full of God's working. God's, we see God's fingerprints all through Joseph's story. We know God worked in Joseph's life. But when you look at the narratives of his brothers, we don't see God working in, in, in their lives. We don't see them living for God. We see Simeon and Levi killing many Shechemites, uh, to, to bring justice for their sister. <clears throat> we see the brothers selling Joseph into slavery. We see Reuben going and sleeping with his father's concubine. We see Judah having an incestuous relationship with his, with his daughter-in-law Tamar. They lived as if they weren't living for God. They lived as if they didn't have a law that God had given them to obey. And they never, we don't see God mentioned in any of their stories until now. God is being mentioned to them. God is being brought up to them. So we see how this rough treatment that that Joseph is giving to them, it's starting to work. They're starting to realize their sin. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. I can imagine these brothers lived fairly easy lives when they were in Canaan. And then now that they're, they've come to Egypt, they're, they're experiencing all of this difficulty, and their consciences are being pricked. And their minds are going back to what they did 22 years before this, brothers and sisters, that's a long time, 22 years, to commit some wicked act 
over two decades ago, and then when you're experiencing these difficulties, it's coming to the surface of what you did, of what you know that you didn't confess to the Lord, of what you know that you're you're carrying and and you're hiding that instead of bringing it to the Lord, instead of bringing it out in the open, you just suppressed it and ignored it and not wanted to think about it. 22 years. It's a very long time to, to live with unforgiven sin. We can imagine when when, da- when David hadn't confessed his sin to the Lord for that whole year, what does it say about him? That his body just wore away. David was a believer, and he was dealing with that unconfessed sin. I don't, I don't think these men are, are believers yet at this time. But they still had, they still felt guilty. <clears throat> they still had consciences. And this right here tells us about these about these brothers that when they committed that act, when they thought about killing their brother, they threw him in the pit and then they sold him to slavery. They lied to their father, knowing that their father would never see his beloved son again, knowing that they would never see their brother again. When they did all this, <clears throat> they weren't unfeeling psychopaths doing that. They had consciences working in them. You know, we do read in the scriptures about people who sear their consciences. It says as with a hot iron. There's people like that. Everyone has a conscience. Some people just suppress it so much to where it, it's not convicting them anymore. But I think that's a very rare case. Even in this act that these brothers did, their consciences weren't seared. They acted like it was. They ignored their conscience. They suppressed it. But they, they, they knew that they had done wrong. It says there that they saw the anguish of his soul when Joseph pleaded with them. They just suppressed their guilt. But it was there at the time when they were in the act 22 years before this. They felt guilty. They knew guilt. They knew that they were guilty. They knew that they were in sin. But they suppressed it. And this just, this reminds me, we hear stories today about some man walking into a, into a police station and he goes and tells them about some horrendous crime that he did years before. He couldn't deal with his guilt anymore. Unconfessed sin especially horrendous acts that people have done. I hope there are none of us here in this place who are in this state, who have this guilt, who have this sin that we're just carrying around and we know we haven't surrendered it to the Lord. We know that we're hiding it. I don't want to bring any unnecessary, any wrongful condemnation upon everybody. We know that God forgives sin. For all those who are His people, their sins are forgiven. For all those who have been born again, their sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. God has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea for those who are his. God did not lie when he told us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it says what it says. It says God will cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. There is not a single sin that we can do that God can't forgive us for. And there is not a single sin that we do, that we can do or that we have done that God is unwilling to forgive us for. David sinned. He committed murder. He committed adultery. He committed rape. He was forgiven. The Apostle Paul, he was a murderer. He was forgiven. So God does forgive sin. God forgives any sin. And Jesus calls us to come to him if we're living in unforgiven sin. If we're born again, we need to Know that God has forgiven us. There's no sin that will keep us from the love of our God. There's no sin that will. But 
This is shocking, brothers and sisters. When we read it, we think, okay, so they're feeling guilty for the sin that they did five chapters back. Yeah, we just read that in Genesis 37. But this happened in their, in their lives in real time 22 years before that. That's a long time to just suppress sin and not bring it to the Lord. So these brothers suppressed their guilt for 22 years. But we see here in the scriptures that now they are beginning to be softened. I, I see it that way. In chapter 37, his brothers, it says that they hated him and that they could not speak a, a, a peaceable or pe- speak peaceably to him. And then now when we read in chapter 42 and verses 21 and 22, they call their brother their brother. They couldn't even call him their brother before. When they, when they brought the, the tunic that had blood on it to their father, they said, look at this and see if it's your sons. They couldn't even acknowledge him as their brother before. They call him the boy because he was younger than them. He was their kid brother. But it looks to me that they're no longer angry at, at Joseph. They're, they're no longer bitter at him. They've gotten over that. Time has, has worn that bitterness away, but all that remains is their guilt. Their guilt and their shame. And that guilt is, is coming up to them right, right now. And they're seeing the ugliness of that guilt. An awareness of guilt when the person is hearing about the Lord and is being told the gospel and is, is hearing truth, that awareness of guilt will lead them to repentance. God uses it. Peter preached to the crowd in Acts chapter 2, and it says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And what was Peter's response to them? Repent. Repent. The response is to repent. Change your mind regarding that sin and turn away from it and go to the Lord. Repent. Joseph spoke to them through an interpreter, so, of course, they didn't know that he knew what they were saying because they were, they were talking to one another. Reuben's blaming them. Didn't I tell you not to do this? And he's trying to put all the blame on them. They're, they're realizing their guilt. They're, they're seeing that this must have to do with the wrong that they've done in the past. And, and Joseph is hearing this. He's hearing their confession of guilt to one another. There in verse 24, it says that he turned away from them and wept. So he knew that the Lord was working through this. He knew that the Lord was using this. And he's, he's seen what, what their brothers are going through. He's seen their, the, the anguish and the suffering and the worry and, and the frustration that's going on with them. And the way that I see Joseph, Joseph at this place, he turned away from them. He wept. Joseph just wants to wipe his eyes and come to them and give them all big hugs, tell them all who he is. Tell them the whole story. Tell them he forgives them and, and, and reconcile with them. Joseph wanted reconciliation with his brothers. But if he would have done that, it would have been too hasty. It would have been premature. It would have probably also hindered what God was doing in their hearts. There was still some heart work that God needed to do in, in these men's lives. Sure, God can save quickly. Sure, God can turn the king's heart and turn anyone of, of, of ours hearts. But many times, God chooses to work in us and and soften our hearts. And these brothers needed a lot of softening. So Joseph wanted to see reconciliation with his brothers, but it wasn't time yet. So what did he do? Well, he wiped his eyes. He came back out to them. He, verse 24, continues to say that he took Simeon from them. He bound him before their eyes. 
This was a difficult thing for Joseph to do. Then Joseph commanded that their sacks be filled with grain, that every man's money be put in their sack, and that they would be given provisions for the journey. And then we read that as they got a distance away, it says, One of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed, and he saw his money in his sack. So he told his brothers there in verse 28, it says that their hearts were, or their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Other translations of the scriptures say their hearts sank and they turned trembling to one another, saying, and it's not just one of the brothers saying this to the rest of them, it's all of them saying this to each other. They're realizing this. You know, this is the first time that they mention God these brothers of his. I went back and looked at their narratives and, and I don't see any, any mentioning of God. I don't see any recognition of God. Now they mention him in a way that they're recognizing that God is bringing discipline in, into their lives. God is bringing this trial in their lives. They're not mentioning him in a sense to where they're repentant towards him, to where they're worshiping him or honoring him. But this is a start. They're actually mentioning God in their lives. Joseph first mentioned him to them, Elohim. I fear God. And now they're, they're, they're thinking. They're thinking about God. They're, they're feeling this conviction. They see all these things happening to them. And they're terrified. They're terrified. God uses terror in people's lives to bring them to a realization of who He is. It's, it's, it's not good for the loving saint to always seek to coddle loved ones when they're terrified in situations that they're in. Tell them about God. We, we, we should try to encourage one another, but if God's using this, using things, events in people's lives to bring them to Him, allow God to continue working in that way. So we don't see God working in them anymore in this chapter, but this definitely is a start. This is a start in, with what the Lord is doing with them. And God's going to continue working them, in them in the next couple of chapters, all the way until when Joseph reveals Himself to them in chapter 45. Finally, I want to address Jacob's cynicism here. The brothers went back to their father. They told their father everything that happened about how this Lord of the land treated them and, and how that they came back minus one brother. Simeon's not there with them. Simeon was kept back. He's held in prison. And, and they, they told him how Simeon was going to be kept in prison and they needed to bring Benjamin back with them so that their words could be verified and, and that they could trade in the land. And when they told this to their father, when they told this to Jacob, all of this is too overwhelming for Jacob. He's probably getting flashbacks of when he lost Joseph. They, 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 they were gone and they came back without Joseph. Now this time they're gone and they come back without Simeon. And then he's hearing from them that they need to take Benjamin with them, his favorite son. And, and, and now he's threatened to lose Benjamin. He tells them, you have bereaved me. Bereaved is a very strong word. That's a word that's used when you lose, when you lose loved ones, when you, especially your children. He says, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. <clears throat> and you want to take Benjamin. Jacob said, all these things are against me. Jacob was bereaved. He lost Joseph and now he lost Simeon. He was a bereaved father. But the fact that he said here, all these things are against me. We can think that that's a shocking thing for him to say. This is a man who was blessed by God. This is one of the fathers of the faith. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All these things are against, against me. We can imagine, well, maybe he said it out of and just a, a frustration at the time. He's, he's in emotional shock. He's realizing he lost another one of his sons. And, and he just said it, but maybe he didn't really mean it all that much. But also we can read in the scriptures later on down the road when he gets to Egypt and he meets with Pharaoh and Pharaoh asked Jacob, how old are you? Jacob told Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 47, verse nine, he said, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil. And then it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then that was good. But all the while, the things that he's saying don't always honor God. The things that he's saying don't show that he's trusting in God. Jacob, in the later years of his life, he basically became cynical. He basically became negative towards God. And, and really, he was a man who just, he basically needed to count his blessings. He needed to look at the good that God had done in his life. And, and he wasn't doing that. He became like a, like a believing cynic. And that's really a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as a, as a Christian cynic. But Jacob was a man who was blessed by the Lord. He was born into a believing family. And that was all by God's mercy. God chose to have mercy upon and to save Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant promises that, that were given to his father and to his grand- grandfather, they were also given to him. Jacob had the blessing and the birthright, and he wasn't even the firstborn, yet he still had them. Remember when he left to go find a wife in Canaan? It says that he left with just a staff, and now he came back a very wealthy man. He was someone who really needed to thank God for the large family that he really had. Yeah, he he, he was a bereaved father, but there was so much that he could be thankful for. He had much more than Job did. Remember what Job said? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then it says about Job, in all these things, Job did not sin or charge God with anything. So Job experienced more loss than Jacob did, but he honored God. He still honored God in in his trial. He experienced the same kind of pain and hurt that Jacob did, but he honored God through his trial. Jacob experienced much blessing he experienced the angel's protection from Esau's revenge. And a lot of these trials and a lot of these tribulations that were brought upon Jacob throughout his life were because of his own sin. And that's the way it is with all of us. A lot of the trials, a lot of the persecutions that are in our lives as Christians, as believers, is brought about because of our own sin. And that's the way it was for Jacob. But he was focusing on the wrong things. The angel, Jesus, came in the form of a man and wrestled with him. Jesus wounded him so that he would never trust in his flesh for the rest of his life. What kind of, what kind of blessing is that? What kind of blessing in disguise is that? But he was focusing on the wrong things. And at the end of the chapter, we read Jacob saying to his sons, Benjamin is not going back there. You're not taking Benjamin with you. That's how it ends. Jacob really needed to, this is why I'm stressing this point, Jacob really needed to yield himself to what God was doing in his life. Not just receive from the Lord the good, but also receive from the Lord 
the bad, the difficult, those things that we don't want, those things that don't taste good, that don't feel good. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus said you will be persecuted. You will be hated, just like our Savior was. Even fellow believers can hurt us. That's why we need to be quick to forgive and quick to seek forgiveness because we will be sinned against and we'll sin against one another. And the Lord scourges his children. It's part of growing as a Christian. God scourges his children. And it may not be because of some thing that you just did. You're, you're realizing, oh, God spanked me because I need to get, get in check right here. It's part of our growth as Christians. It's part of our, our maturity. I'm telling this to myself. It's part of our maturity. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God's scourges come. And when the Lord chastens us, it's not about anger, the same way that many of us were probably disciplined by angry earthly fathers. God doesn't discipline us out of anger. He disciplines us out of love. But he does scourge us. Many of God's scourges are temporary, but many of them will be not permanent, but they will last for the rest of this life, like Jacob's hip socket. That, la- that lasted the rest of his life. You remember a man named, named Philip Paul Bliss. We sing many of his, of his hymns. He was a, the great hymn writer and composer. A couple of Wednesdays back, we sang The Light of the World. That was written by him in, in 1875. That year, he wrote Man of Sorrows. It's also called Hallelujah, What a Savior. A wonderful hymn. If, if that hymn isn't if, if you don't, if you don't quickly remember those lyrics, we sing it often, but I'd encourage you to go back and, and read that hymn. I was actually tempted to, to read that today, but for, for sake of time, I won't do it. But if you don't recall it right away, go back and read that. It is rich in the gospel. He wrote that hymn. He wrote many hymns. This man, Philip Bliss, D.L. Moody had asked him to go with him full time on his, on his conferences where Philip would sing and, and Moody would, would preach. At first he, he told Moody no, because Philip enjoyed preaching and he didn't want to just sing and then have D.L. Moody do all of the preaching. So Moody got Ira Sankey. And then eventually Philip came back and through D.L. Moody constantly asking him to, to join him on, on his crusades, Philip agreed to do it. He agreed and, did you have your hand up? Yeah, Jesus also. He, he he was scourged, but not not for his own sin, right? He was scourged for our sin. But he also gave us the example in, in suffering as well. Well, Philip agreed to go on these tours with D.O. Moody. Just like Ira Sankey did, Philip would sing and, and then Moody would preach the gospel and, and Moody I I've heard some of some of what Moody preached. He wasn't one of these flimsy uh so called evangelists like there are today, D.L. Moody preached. And one thing about D.L. Moody was he had an urgency and he pointed people to Christ. And even after the, the Chicago fire, he felt guilty because he basically told a lot of people, come back the next week to continue hearing. And many of those people couldn't because they perished in that fire. And that just gave him a man who had urgency in preaching the gospel, an urgent evangelist that gave him all the more urgency. And I'm thinking, that's what many people need today. Many Christians need that same urgency with theology today. 
So Philip agreed to to join him, and he was actually on, on a train ride with his wife Lucy. She was also a musician. She joined him in all of the in, in, in all of these services. It was December 29th in 1876 that Philip and his wife were on a train heading to Chicago. <clears throat> they left their two young sons back home with their grandparents. They were on the train crossing the Ashtabula River in Ohio, and the bridge collapsed, killing 92 people on that train. Most of the people on that train perished. All of the train cars fell, plummeted like 60 feet into the icy river below. It, it wasn't very deep at that time. It wasn't very deep, and, and the, the train quickly caught on fire. It's said, I don't know if it's true, but it is said that that Mr. Bliss came out of the train and then when he realized that his wife wasn't with him, he went back in there to go rescue her. He was warned by people, it's on fire, it's in flames, you're, you're, no one in there is going to survive, but he had to go in and rescue his wife. Well, he perished in that accident with his wife. They didn't really perish. It was actually a train ride to heaven when they thought they were just going to Chicago. But they left with their grandparents, their two young sons, under five years old. And we can... Wonder why scourges happen to God's people. And many times we don't know why they happen, but God uses them. And the Lord is concerned that even though we experience these scourges and, and these, these trials, God is concerned that we have a right attitude towards him in them. That we don't sin with our words, that we don't sin with our actions, that we honor God through them. And we have examples for us, brothers and sisters. We have examples of Jacob. And we should learn from Jacob don't respond to trials the way Jacob did. We have examples like his brother, his brother, his son, Joseph. Respond to trials like Joseph did. He was always following the Lord. He was always trusting in the Lord. We have examples like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Always trusting in, in the Father. That's how we should be. Finally, we have here a, a type of Christ. We have a ty- another type of Christ that Joseph is showing to us. <clears throat> when his brothers saw him, they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. Scriptures tell us one day everyone will recognize Jesus as who he says he was, even though the, the, the Jews didn't recognize him at first. Everyone will recognize. It says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> well, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and